Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the early history of parapsychology at Duke University. With me is Dr. Sally Rhine Feather, who is the eldest daughter of Joseph Banks Rhine, often regarded as the father of parapsychology, and Louisa Rhine, who has been referred to as the first lady of parapsychology. She practically grew up at the parapsychology lab at Duke University and later earned a doctorate in experimental psychology at Duke University. She is author or co-author of over 20 articles, papers, book reviews, and research briefs in the field of parapsychology. Her research has involved psychokinesis, precognition, mood, memory, and response preferences. She has also worked most of her professional career as a clinical psychologist with an emphasis on supporting people who have had troubling psychic experiences and applying psi ability to the health and healing fields. She is co-author with Michael Schmicker of The Gift, Extraordinary Paranormal Experiences of Ordinary People, she is a member of the Board of Directors of the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. This is an internet video interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet channel. Welcome, Sally. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. I've been uh, affiliated with the Rhine Research Center as, as one of your advisors now for quite a few years, but yeah. this is really our first time uh, together on, on video, so truly it, it's a delight for me. And you have an extraordinary history when I think about it. You were about six years old when, when your father became uh, internationally famous with the publication of his book, Extrasensory Perception. Right. That came out in 1935 and I was five years old. You so, were pretty close. So you, you've grown up with parapsychology your entire life. Yes. And, uh, and then you went on to pursue a doctoral degree in psychology at Duke University at the very department where your father was a professor. That was That's right. I certainly did. And as I understand it, he was brought to Duke University by William McDougall, who was a very famous psychologist and chairman of the department at the time. Well, that was nearly the way it was. He actually had wanted to go to Duke with uh, a manuscript he was to uh, study, and McDougall was the logical person and the most only person in the world, really, who where he could have go gone and done that on an academic basis on a campus. Mm -hmm. Did you personally know McDougall? Yes, I remember he died. When I was about eight years old, but I have a memory that I can still visualize. I must have been about seven mm -hmm. then. And my father said to me, uh, Dr. McDougall is going to be is the most famous man you'll ever know. And the reason I remember that was because I was young enough to think, well, gee, my father 
he's more famous, more wonderful than my father. So I had this conflict about uh, his his spiritual father, you might say. Mm-hmm. So I remember him, yes. Yeah, I studied uh, McDougal as an undergraduate in psychology. Did you? Yeah, okay, I, still around him. Uh, well, no, I what I mean to say, I was a student at the University of Wisconsin, and he they, yes. his personality theories were taught. We're still taught. Okay, I know they they didn't last very long in psychology by the time I got there. Well, I I was a student in the 1960s in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, he he was definitely in the personality theory textbook. Okay. Well, well, that's good. I just didn't take a personality course until a little bit later in graduate school. uh, By that time, he wasn't around. Well, but you were there as a graduate student at Duke University at this in the 1960s, I gather. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. I came back um, to graduate school in my 30s mm-hmm. after I was a young married woman with children. Actually, I I see. And you were really following in in your parents' footsteps, pursuing a, a degree in experimental psychology. Well, JB told me at that time I had been working at the lab. And he told me, I'm calling my father by JB, that's much easier than anything <laughs> any other way. But he told me, if you ever want to accomplish anything in this field, if you can get a doctorate, it'll make a big difference. Mm-hmm. More than than many other topics, because, well, we all know the reasons for that, for the criticisms that one would get. So this would help people know that you had had a background in some other uh, really highly related subject. Mm-hmm. And so, so I took yeah. him up on that. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess it was sometime in the 60s that he left Duke University and set up the a separate institute just off campus. Right. Uh, that it was in 1965 that he – it was retirement age for him, a mandatory mm-hmm. retirement age. And so at that time, he set up the um, a foundation on which he could continue the work. He never planned to stop, but he just moved off campus. Mm-hmm. And, and thanks to some funding was able to, uh, from other people, was able to do that. Now, I have heard various rumors about his uh, relationship with the psychology department at Duke mm-hmm. University that yeah. uh, there were a number of controversies because, uh, amongst other things, he was probably far more famous than any other professor at Duke. Well, for a period of time, he yes, he was at the very beginning, he, uh, there were only four people in that department, Zener, Adams, and himself, and uh, Dr. Lundholm. And uh, they were buddy-buddies. In fact, his colleagues helped him get started, you know, including the name of the cards, the Zener cards, which Dr. Zener helped design. But as things went, uh, he was very popular with the graduate students and the undergraduates. You can imagine if you had a choice of studying ESP versus mm, the usual learning or whatever, uh, that students would gravitate toward him. Well, that didn't help make him very popular with his colleagues. So there was some of that. And when he finally became in the parapsychology part, became independent, uh, independent branch or even a separate laboratory before that, it was probably a relief to everyone. Mm-hmm. You, you mean once he moved off campus or still no. at Duke? Even while on campus, he had a separate laboratory in 1935, which was separate rooms. You know, he wasn't down the hall from his colleagues, mm-hmm. former colleagues. They remained personal friends. I, I knew later when I was in graduate school, I had uh, I was helped to get in graduate school by Dr. Adams' recommendation. And I had a course with Dr. Zener. 
Mm-hmm. So we were friends in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I assume that the department grew over the years, probably oh, yes. by the 1960s. I'm guessing there might have been 30 or 40 faculty members. Yes, I think there were. And there were, of course, by that time, different departments, mm-hmm. et cetera. So there always are now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by the time I got into well, the field of psychology, parapsychology was not only not taught, it was looked down on. And I, yes. I gather that, that your parents received uh, a lot of negative uh, criticism and that it affected them personally. Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, uh, as, as they went along, I don't think it did so much at first, but when the criticisms began to come in because of the publicity, 1938, as a matter of fact, I was reading my, rereading my mother's book on the the backside of this, the home, the home part, the part you wouldn't read in the textbooks. Yeah. And she uh, was quoting uh, from her own journals that she kept in 1938, say JB would come home for lunch because he lived close enough he could walk home and have lunch at home. He didn't want to talk about his work at all. Even the work that she had been doing, he just didn't want to talk about it. And it was just so, it, it was uh, oppressive, the criticisms that were coming at, at that time, one right after the other, by people that really hadn't even read the material, but still just knew it couldn't be real. So he, that, that was a personal side. But that's not apparent in his letters, which I'm also familiar with now. He, he never let on. This was only somebody like a wife who would know this, probably. I recall being told, and I don't remember where, but that he actually sought psychological counseling to help him navigate through the, this very difficult terrain. Yeah, I never heard that. But mm-hmm. of course, he had friends like McDougall for, until he passed away and Gardner Murphy, uh, who was an, an, his next mentor, although they didn't live nearby. Uh, but I never heard that he did, but he he probably got it in, in other ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can well imagine uh, the pressure he must have been under, considering that now, many, many decades after he passed away, the field is still embroiled in controversy. I know. It's if if I hadn't grown up in it and seen the way it's gone all along, I would I would be um, shocked or dismayed or discouraged. But this is. Kind of what I've always seen going on, uh, depending where you are. Mm-hmm. There'll be a, some, several periods of time where things are going quite well, particularly if you've gotten a lot of money or got, which the Ryan Center never had a lot enough of. But, but particularly, uh, in this field, we just, we sort of take it for granted now and go around it. At least I do in my thinking. Mm-hmm. So, not that I worry. <laughs> how old were you when you started working at the parapsychology lab? Well, that's interesting. In 1945, the United States was still were coming out of World War II, but the the young young people and the young men, anyway, who had been around as even graduate students were were scarce. So they were short of help for checking. Now, checking everything that was done experimentally had to be checked by hand at least twice. And so I was called, I was, my first paid job was at H as a checker of the data Mm -hmm. at the lab, at the Duke lab back at, I can remember because it didn't, we didn't have air conditioning and this is the South. So we'd have a fan going. And and I I remember that particularly because 
one day, one of the graduate students who was still around, I can remember him very well, Jack Hornaday, who went on to be a fine psychologist, came storming in. I had found an error that he had made, and he could not believe it. So he, mm-hmm. he was sure that I had made a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, he bought me a box of candy when he found out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember my role as checker. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it would have been a, so such a small thing I would have forgotten it. But at that time, it was very important. It was before the era of computers and all of the data, the experimental data was manually recorded and susceptible to human error. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I didn't find very many errors, but that was our job. Mm-hmm. So, And how old were you at that time? I was 15 uh-huh. in 1945. So I remember that. And I went off to college and I think I worked in the summertime when they needed me for mundane jobs like that. Or actually, as I got a little older, 18 and 19, maybe my summer from college, I could I was an assistant to somebody like Betty McMahon who would be doing a study, and I would go along and help with the papers, and, you know, just anybody would for their parent for their job. And I was very interested in by that time. I had I felt the lab people were, were good people and friendly people, and it was – it was like an extended family in many ways. And the kinds of experiments that were being done at the time were the, uh, the basic uh, card guessing and dice throwing, I presume. Right. Now, I'm not trying to think if the, the dice throwing had begun by then. It had become, yes, in the 40s. That had, uh, was, it had been started earlier, but it, it came published in the early 40s. So, yes. So, both were going on. I, I would go along. I worked with the ESP cards um, at a local nurse, not a nursery, but a um, an orphanage where it was called then, or children's home now. Uh, and I went along, you know, to help with something like that. They were, and, and with the blind children, we were looking to see if uh, blind children might have more mm-hmm. uh, psychic ability. But these were with uh, reports were work were going on. I don't know any of that. Any of them were they probably were published. I was just an assistant, so my name wouldn't have been. On them. Yeah. But uh, at the time, I gather that the emphasis, uh, I, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that people at the lab had pretty much figured out they had established the existence yeah. of the phenomenon. They were looking to find out how, how does it work? What kind of people are more prone to score higher? Absolutely. The era of the 40s was where things had already been pretty well established with the PK coming along last, psychokinesis. But yes, so, so the interest was in personality characteristics as were measured by the psych, you know, psych inventories of the day or types of people, you know, like children versus adults or men versus women. Those things that we sort of take for granted now, take for granted usually in that there weren't many differences of that sort. There were in later, more refined ways, but in that era, it was uh, pretty largely that, as well as just, I think the PK data, the dice throwing, was still so controversial because it was new. And in fact, they delayed publication, you know, uh, quite a while. And then they found internal effects that helped bolster the case for it. And so that was just coming up in the 1940s. I suppose the researchers felt that extrasensory perception was controversial enough and psychokinesis would only muddy the waters. Absolutely. All along, really, from the very beginning, even way back in precognition, was studied as early as 1933 
after they had established uh, telepathy and clairvoyance to their satisfaction. I'm talking about the lab people. But they didn't mention precognition until they had done quite a few studies, quite a few studies to convince themselves and then to be ready to face the criticisms that would, would normally come mm-hmm. and get repetitions by other people. Yeah. And so how large was the uh, staff at the parapsychology lab? You know, I can't remember that now. It's just a blur to me. I, I can think of the rooms mm-hmm. in the in the laboratory, which was uh, 1935. There ended up being a total of about 11 rooms. And this was an enormous achievement for one researcher on a campus yeah. with with such a small department. But uh, and those rooms were occupied. So there were uh, with graduate students, a lot of them, and, and then uh, sta- uh, regular staff people names that you might still remember, like Gaither Pratt. Um, and uh, you didn't know Charlie Charles Stewart. He died in in the 40s. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there, there were some, they have some full time people there as well. Mm-hmm. So, as you became um, older, you yourself became a yeah, an author of a number of uh, papers in yes. in the field. You began looking into uh, precognition and psychokinesis yourself. Yes, I did indeed. I, I never stayed with anything. I sort of flitted around. Actually, I was in and out of the lab at different times. First, before college, then after. College. I was back again working with the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I did. A, I did publish it, and my father and I published an article on side trailing with animals. And that was a time when when that was a very big topic. And uh, I assisted Dr. Carlos Osis. Do you remember him? Yes, indeed. He worked with cats in an interesting experiment, and I found that quite fascinating. But and and that work was published. Um, I did. I was just an assistant. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so a, a variety of different things, and then later. I went, I left, I left to get married, I guess. And then I came back in and out and in and out in different times in my life. Uh So nothing consistent. So, but you mentioned Psy trailing. Now, that's not a term I'm actually familiar with. Okay. Let me say that animal Psy, which he, JB shortened to call ANSI work, uh, was as we, he asked me when I came home from college in 1951 to do a survey and, and, go through all the articles and we could find in those days, we didn't have the internet to do it for us. So we accumulated all the reports of experiments and then we sought animal stories about animals. So he would write articles. I don't know where different articles. I even wrote an article for cat magazine in which we used examples Mm -hmm. of, of animals that had come home from being lost or who seemed to know when their owner was coming home, which was later made, um, Famous by Rupert Sheldrake, we we collected whatever came mm-hmm. to us, much like my mother later did with humans, and then we got, got accumulation of things. And one of the most surprising were the occasional stories of an animal who followed his master or mistress to a new location. And it's, it sounds impossible, even as I describe it now, but there were several. I guess about seven or eight really remarkable cases. Now, J.B. got as excited about that as I've ever seen him. And he actually went out to, you know, people have, have accused him of sort of neglecting the experiential side. He was very much into cases in those days and, and, and corroboration of cases. But he had to do that. How do you determine that the cat that appears 100 miles away is the same cat that disappeared from your house 
et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I, I could go on and on, but you get the concept. I see. That's what's meant by trailing. Trailing. You yeah. can't find that today because uh, there are not many dirt roads where a little dog or cat could be running along, uh, along the side of the road and the highway wouldn't, wouldn't uh, work, wouldn't be safe enough. But I seem to recall the reading occasionally, I suppose, in places like the Reader's Digest, that yes. there were animals that would travel hundreds of miles. Yes, more than hundreds. It's hard to believe, but but some of the best cases, and he would, uh, you know, it depended upon the verification. Some animal that showed up with the same collar mm-hmm. that it had on him before and so forth. So he spent a lot of time trying to settle this was this real? Because if this were real, uh, a real psychic thing, I think it was, it would require that animal to have a an inner guide. It's even more difficult to explain than pigeon homing, for instance, mm-hmm. or uh, trailing. In fact, there's one animal, a, a pigeon, that did follow its uh, owner to a, a hospital and appeared at the window by the little boy's window, pecking on the window. And he was sure it was his pet pigeon from home. So, but it was new territory, not going back home again. Well, so that trying, yes. Yeah, we're talking about a homing pigeon, I presume. Homing, that's homing. But, yeah. but when they follow homing pigeon, when they follow it, your own, its owner to a hospital, a pet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to some new location, the indication that those would be psychic, if you could just verify, verify those for sure. Mm-hmm. And of course, then you, it's, it's hard to think of what the explanation could be if it wasn't something psychic. Now, that's really fascinating. And you mentioned Carlos Osis did uh, research involving uh, a cat or several cats. Yes, he was, he was, uh, this was an experimental uh, experiment. It was just to see the relationship between human and, and cat. And uh, I, w- I would say when I was the helper or, the, or actually the, uh, the human involved in the experiment, I would be sitting in a little box where I could look out, but the cat couldn't see me. And I would be wishing him to go to one or two food dishes that food had been placed by Dr. Osis without knowing what I, the target order that I had. And I would be wishing the cat to go to the right or the left, depending upon the target list that I had. And, um, these were cats that he loved that he had raised and they had them at home. And I think that's an important thing. These were his pets. Mm-hmm. And Carlos was very sweet with his animals, very nice to them. Uh, we he got some interesting effects. It was published. I wasn't a co-author. It was uh, Esther Foster was his co-author, and he got some effects which were very provocative. Mm-hmm. But the question also still remains: Was the cat reading my mind as the human, or was I pushing it in some sort of psychokinetic form uh, to go to the right or left as I was wishing it to go? Yeah. But but either one was was interesting. It wasn't it wasn't. Um, I wouldn't say corroborative, but it was highly suggestive. Mm-hmm. We found out, which I think many people have done who work with animals who don't know them very, very well, that animals have their own personalities and their own habits, and they would just start going to one side because they get food anyway. Mm-hmm. And then that was would interfere. Well, uh, your parents uh, seem to have a really good uh, sense of teamwork between them and yes. the way that your your father mostly did the experimental work and your mother focused on field studies or personal <laughs> reports. Right. That's the way it, it, it 
worked out, Jeff. But, you know, starting out in the beginning, 1935, she did the first work with children at home in the kitchen. Oh. With Xeno uh, cards, ESP cards. Mm-hmm. And she would have been an experimenter had that opportunity. Uh, she She was up for whatever was important, whatever needed to be done in a very practical sort of way that her background led to. Mm-hmm. So when she came back to work after we children were old enough, in those days the mother stayed home, you know, there wasn't an au pair there to take care of us. So when she could come back to work, she took whatever job was necessary. And there was a big stack of cases, about 100 cases waiting for someone to take time to answer them. So she did it just because it was a job to do. She thought it would only take her a couple times, and then she'd be back working in experiments. But lo and behold, to everybody's surprise, hers most of all, it was so entrancing and so meaningful as she got through 50 of them. If you've ever read, and you probably have that many experiences at one time, it's hard not to be a believer, even without the scientific and experimental work, which I highly value. Mm -hmm. So that became her life work, and she's probably more noted for that in many ways and more appreciated than he is in, Mm -hmm. in some ways for that. Well, both of your parents, as I understand it, uh, had doctoral degrees in botany. Yes, yes. They both had equal education, amounts of education, probably, although he continued his own, you know, reading and intensive reading and so forth, even more so in parapsychology than she had time to do. Mm-hmm. So they were both, yes, I um, am very interested in the partnership that they had, and I gave a talk not too long ago in um, down at West Georgia, University of West Georgia, really on the partnership of how they work together. Because when I went to the Internet, I couldn't find too many professional couples of that era, at least, who work together. Now, nowadays, it may be easier to do, and it's not always the man who's the lead. It may well, Madame Curie was the lead researcher in her work, and that's another example. But but they didn't live, uh, he and husband didn't live long enough uh, for mm-hmm. husband, yeah. so forth. But this couple, my parents lived together for oh, how many years was it? Uh, from he was, uh, yeah, he died at the age of eighty-four, and she lived until uh, age ninety-one. And they were working together since their twenties. Mm-hmm. And uh, and both of them were really devoted to parapsychology throughout their professional career. They didn't deviate. Oh. Yes, no, it wasn't. It was it wasn't a question of that. It was just a matter of who did what and and so forth. And so I, I think it's remarkable. I think that's one of the reasons he did as well as he did and um, was able to do as well as he did. I mean, <laughs> you know yourself, if you've got somebody at home cooking and taking care of things and children and so forth, you you're more freed up to uh, to do what you need to do. Or that could be reversed in in other cases. No, I think part of their success was certainly the the teamwork that existed between sure. the, yeah. the two of them. Um, you know, uh, well, as you know, I wrote a book called The PK Man about yes, an yes, extraordinary about person who you knew. I knew Ted Owens. Somewhat. He worked, I believe he worked at the parapsychology lab in mm-hmm. 1947 or so. About the time I was, I was just finishing high school. He, it was again, as I said earlier, during the wartime, they were short of people, and they needed us. I think he came as a secretary because yeah. my first first uh, realization that that men did jobs like that. We all had our sexist uh, notions <laughs> in those days. Mm-hmm. He helped to probably with the book that JB was uh, finishing up at that period of time. So I, I, I knew Ted that that way. I think it was the reach of the mind. 
Yes, it would have been that. Yeah. And, he, of course, that was an interest in PK. Now, I don't know if he, uh, I confess, I looked at your book today to, to be reminded of, because I knew of that work that you had done with him. Mm-hmm. It, but it was quite a few years later. Oh, yes. Which he had, he had um, I don't know, maybe more consolidated his work. At this time, it, he still had abilities, but I don't know if they ever, I don't know how much work he did in the lab there. And surely I, I, I don't think he did any work in, in maybe the not. Lab. He I, was I, there to be a secretary, and they needed yeah. that. Mm-hmm. My understanding is he was in the Navy and was experiencing yes. psychic phenomena. And he wrote to JB uh, while he was in the Navy, and yes. JB said, "Well, when you get out of the Navy, come to Duke, and I'll help mm-hmm. you." He, and he he enrolled as an undergraduate at Duke, I believe. Oh and, yes, okay, and then. Uh, JB provided him with employment as well. Yes, that would have been a, just the kind of thing that would have worked well for for both. I think it was a win win. Now I don't know how it you know how it ended. He went off uh, to do other things, and I, my mother kept up with him and correspondence. And I can remember she got a letter from Ted Owens, which she would share that around the supper table. It was always fascinating letter. Mm-hmm. He was off in some South Sea Islands or somewhere <laughs> that often. Well, he was a colorful character, but I think his, his career as a practicing psychic, uh, probably began many years after he left, uh, I think so. the work at yeah. Duke University. Yeah. And I'm glad you were able to, to work with him because he was a mercurial person, I think. Wasn't yeah, he? Extremely so. <laughs> as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, he wasn't very, I was just a teenager and I was not important. I could see that his interest was where mine would be now more in the people that are running the work. But mm-hmm. uh, I do remember him. He was colorful even then. Yeah. Well, it, it's an interesting little piece of history. I'm sure his life was deeply colored by yes. his association with your family. I hope, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm interested in these people that become um, known just because of Primarily because of their psychokinetic ability. And my most recent interest, uh, research interest that I had uh, in recent years would be to collect the stories of the psychokinetic type, spontaneous PK. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother didn't, wasn't able to collect many of those because they weren't being reported. Yeah. But once we started asking about them, then they began to pour in. Now, there haven't been many people who whole life is revolved around them. But there have, there are a number, you know, other people who are known just because of their PK abilities. Well, particularly uh, people who are engaged in uh, various shamanistic practices. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're having a talk on shamanism this very, or oh, tomorrow night I'll be listening to mm-hmm. that, and we take that seriously, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you uh, were actively involved in the creation of the Rhine Research Center uh, when, when it first got started uh, when we, we when we renamed it yeah. you're talking about, yes uh-huh. exactly I can remember the day we were sitting out in my we had a little staff meeting out in my living room and when they had a place in the country and um, the discussion came up that the name the research on the uh, foundation for the research in the nature of man or Furnham as we used to call it was far too cumbersome it yeah. was outdated mm-hmm. and John Palmer actually you know you know sure. actually I don't like the use of the word man because it's implying that it's male rather than generic. So we took the name man out of it and changed it to. And the other thing was, I didn't suggest the Ryan Research Center. That came up from the staff. I said to the staff, no, I don't think we should use the name Ryan because my father or my mother would not have, neither one of them would have wanted their name 
they thought of it as a broader topic than that. Mm-hmm. But but I got voted down, so it became the Ryan Research Center. Well, um, your family was really very renowned, and I know for myself uh, in 1973 is when I uh, created a, a graduate program at Berkeley in parapsychology. I had local professors who sponsored me, but the first thing I wanted to do was make a pilgrimage to Durham, North Carolina oh. uh, to meet your parents. It was uh, essential. Very good. I wish I had been. I think I was not there in 73. No, no. I, think I was elsewhere. But uh, I'm, I'm, it was still going pretty well then, and he was uh, maybe taking more of a back seat. But he might have still been direct. No, p- perhaps Dr. Rao was the director then. Actually, at that time, at that very moment, when I happened to visit, Jay Levy was the oh uh, yes director, oh, yes. and and I was very impressed. I saw all of his experiments. They had oh, these know. wonderful cages, and uh, all everything was automated to work yes. with. It, it would seem like a it beautiful experiment that was going to put parapsychology on a whole new footing. And, yes. and then it turned out uh, that Levy himself had been doctoring the data. Absolutely. Yeah. And would, that, that was, uh, I think, probably the worst crisis. Oh, I'm sure that's the worst crisis in JB's life yeah. and certainly in the life of the field. I think it set it back quite a few years. And it was, it was a, coincidence, I guess, that he had just been, J.B. had just been writing about deception. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it out? He wrote afterwards. I know he wrote a lot about yeah. it. And he yeah. did handle it well. And I think in your, in the video that I heard you had with John Cruth, it was, you did, you both described, described that very accurately and mm-hmm. well, but how, how a tragedy like that can be handled if it's handled properly. Mm-hmm. But I, I had known over the years how very, very careful J.B. was. Uh, even research, when, which I was involved, I was scan, uh, checked just as carefully as anyone else. And I once was working with somebody who did who did cheat, and I know how he handled that quickly and privately and sent that person packing back to their country of origin, uh, mm-hmm. not to hurt them any more than they would already be hurt. Uh, but it was devastating for me to have all that work I had been doing mean nothing. And so I can fully appreciate what it meant to the other staff people, how tragic it is. Well, Fortunately, it's, it's not that common. I, I think uh, it was always your parents' interest in integrating parapsychology into mainstream science. Yes. Yes. And it's so sad that it hasn't happened more, but mm-hmm. – what maybe I should ask, I'd like to interview you and ask you what you think it will happen. <laughs> well, um, I know, for example, as, as you point out, that, that the details of experimental methodology and statistics were extremely important to him mm-hmm. to, yes. to be sure that. Uh, everything was state of the art as as that state existed in, in those days in which experimental psychology and even statistics was just getting off the ground. Yes, he helped that push that along, and then they knew more about probability after parapsychology appeared than they did before, according to statisticians mm-hmm. that I've heard. But on the other hand, the phenomenon itself. Uh, was pointing in in a direction you might say away from science toward uh, maybe yes. a more spiritual appreciation. Yes, and I'm sorry that he didn't get to that point where he 
felt comfortable enough to talk about that. He didn't even at home, although I knew and we all knew that this his work was a spiritual quest for him. Finding the evidence for psychic ability would be for him a substitute for the um, for the it would be the fact provide factual basis that might underline all religious and spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. All religions have what we would call psychic experiences, but could be much, much more if you look at them that way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in your work, you gravitated towards clinical psychology eventually and really more of a focus on uh, on the meaning of these psychic events for individuals. Right. I guess I, in a naive way, when I was in my 30s I or when I went to graduate school, which was late, I, I always thought, well, I, I learned to understand more of what psi is all about from a psychological point of view and then come back and bring that into the field. Well, I never came, got back until I got called back in more of an administrative way. But I, in, my interest still is that. How did, the way you speak to your the experiment or the instructions that you give them, the way you look at them or the way they see you, I believe that makes a lot of difference. And, and of course, JB talked about that in the sense of a salesman. You, a good experimenter is like a good salesman. He's selling you something. She's selling you something. Mm-hmm. She has to believe in it. It's pretty hard for the, if the experimenter doesn't really believe and let that be known. Well, mm-hmm. you know, you're a psychologist too. So we're, we, we overlap. Well, Gertrude Schmeidler did all of this important work she at did. the City College of New York on the sheep-goat effect. And yes. uh, I have to assume she was in close contact with uh, the people at Duke University while she was doing that work. Oh, yes, she was. We profited a lot by her work. I say the lab did. And she uh, was very close to J.B. She has a chapter in the memorial book about him, you know, that Dr. Rao put together, which is a very um, strong book. And I I myself, had I been a younger person and free to move around in time of graduate school and not have a family back home, I probably would have studied with her if I could have because I liked what she was doing and I liked her approach. Uh, I think even now we don't have enough psychologists who are using their, I don't mean their experimental skills, I mean their other skills mm-hmm. be involved, but they overlap. And I, and I think, for instance, I see John Cruth doing this with the way he talks to students and, I mean, subjects and people like that. Mm-hmm. But it, it has to be done. You have to bring you have to bring that part into it in order to, yeah. if you're trying to get your subjects to perform in, in whatever way. Mm-hmm. And that's for some reason... You Now, I accidentally stumbled on a, a procedure of um, volunteer my study that I did on, on memory. Mm-hmm. I, at the time I was doing it, I don't remember now <laughs> what I was thinking in my memory of my memory study. But I think what I did was interject uh, such a tough task when I asked somebody, first take an ESP test, then take a memory test, then take another ESP test. Well, I think if you're at all concerned about performance, and most of us are. Now, there are a few people just saying, what the heck, this is fun, I'm just going to do it and have fun, mm. and they scored better. Mm. The people that care about their performance and were a little bit anxious, uh-oh, I can't remember that, that carries over, that negative attitude toward yourself, really, mm-hmm. carries over, and you tend to miss the ESP targets. So I found a nice correlation between how they did on one task and one or the other, and I don't think it was a real test of memory. I think it was a test of anxiety on the ESP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there were all of these various personality factors and mood factors uh, that were being tested in that era. Yes, yes, that was that was the thing then. Now there's there's there are other things that are exciting too. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the problems I think eventually is uh, that the critics began. Well, the, the world became computerized, and people were saying we get much better randomness with uh, using uh, computers than we do with shuffling cards or rolling yes. dice, and and so people everything sort of shifted away from that early research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, it yeah, there's advantage to both, but it does. I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which is the answer, but you you, you can't lose the human factor, mm-hmm. and computers can help that. So you have more time to spend with your subjects. That's the yeah. uh, the other way if you're doing a face to face experiments. Some people have suggested that the the problem with the card guessing tests is that they become boring after a while. And- sure. Yes, they do. That was remember Eileen Garrett. That was what she she said. Even as she scored quite well at the famous medium mm-hmm. back in the nineteen thirties, yeah. she came down and uh, and did some marvelous work. Um, and they said later she was bored, but she managed to do well in spite of that. Mm-hmm. And as a child, I was never bored. I have to say that's a little different. When you're a child playing a card game, you're you're interested in what your reward's going to be or what the adults are saying. Or just trying to win. Well, I can well imagine your parents might have thought they could run some tests on you as a young child. I'm, I'm sure they were interested in whether children would outperform adults. Yes, they did. That was that. That's always been done a lot. And, and when I've done it informally, I've found that the children can often do better than if they bring their grandmother along or their father or something. They they can often do just as well or better mm-hmm. because they enjoy it more. Yeah. It's, it's and, and the performance part of it. Now, the performance part of it is, um, you know, important. Even if a classroom of children are, are given a test, then it's like, am I as good as Johnny or can I beat Janie or whatever? So you get all sorts of factors like that involved. But children are more spontaneous until they learn not to be, right? Mm. Well, you know, it dawns on me in a funny way. And this is the same era, I believe, in which Masters and Johnson were measuring sexual activity in the laboratory. And both are very (laughs) delicate to get a a person to perform extrasensory perception. Uh, In the the lab, it may be not so different than uh, measuring a sexual response. Absolutely, absolutely. And when you tell some, and particularly when you say somebody perform now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, to make it simpler, you'd say it's like writing a poem. Then you can say that to anybody. Yeah. It's not that easy to do on that on demand. But you, uh, over time, I'm sure the people at the laboratory developed some good interpersonal skills for that purpose. Yes, I, th- I think the, the the best subjects, the best mm-hmm. experimenters have a natural ability, or they can develop it. And I had I had suggested to JB that we use a one-way mirror, and uh, he didn't like that idea at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. That would be, you'd make people self-conscious. Mm-hmm. And you might, you mm-hmm. might. Uh, but that's the way you train counselors sometimes. When mm-hmm. I was teaching, well, of course, I once taught in counseling, it, it was preferable to have somebody watching you and giving you hints, not, not telling you what you did wrong, but just telling you what you might do a little bit more effectively. Yeah. I think that helps with the salesmanship mm-hmm. too. Now, I understand that as a counselor, you have focused uh, to some degree on people who are troubled 
by psychic experiences? I haven't had as, you know, I, I wish I had been in a place where, uh, um, I had more referrals like that. Now, Jim Carpenter is our expert on that area here in yeah. our area. And if I know if I have somebody who has a problem and I, I would be, I refer to him because mm-hmm. I know he understands it's sympathetic. I have had a few, I have had a few cases like that. And, and not long ago, a young man came up to me at a meeting and, and reminded me that he had been a child a patient of mine and that I had said, sure, you know, ESP is fine, you know, and, and, and had encouraged him with that, and that had made a major difference to him. But I didn't have an opportunity to do that very often. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important for counselors to, of all kinds, at all levels, to have a, a sympathetic understanding. Now, that, that doesn't mean you don't pick up on when something's seriously wrong, and that there are other skills for that dealing with that. Mm-hmm. But with average person... We all get anxious when something unusual happens and we need somebody we can talk to, whatever, whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, one of the difficulties, culturally speaking, even though uh, parapsychology is uh, really now talked about and accepted by, I, I suppose, two-thirds of the population, there's still very few opportunities for people to have a serious heart-to-heart discussion about it. There really are, and it's too bad that we don't have the time for that. We could, we get requests for that all the time. I, the one one thing the Ryan Center does that has been a big help is that we do have a group mm-hmm. that meets monthly, for very confidential. Uh, no one knows what's said, or it's not talked. It's only to, it's only as a service to help each other. It's not for any um, research purpose. And where they can come and talk or just listen to other people talking about their experiences in a safe, confidential way. And, and that that's um, a group can be a big help. And I think there are a few groups out in um, other groups like this still going on. Uh, a lady named Dr. Athena Drews, you may know. Oh, yes. Who is the, the child parapsychologist, uh, the one I refer people who have a child concerned about a child uh, who is having some problems on this line and need a little more than just a quick letter from me would do um, or used to do. Uh, so, so they have a group. She has a group. I had a group going in which I, I think some children could be involved, maybe with parents, mm-hmm. something of that order. But it takes personnel. Again, yeah. once again, you come back to. Who have you got? How can you afford your time? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as I think about it, uh, your family has been there in, in the Durham, North Carolina area now for, uh, <laughs> I don't know, 80 or 90 years. And uh, it, it would seem to me that o- over that time, there there has been a, a community that that has developed because yes. of the existence of your institute and the, the, the work that you do is known internationally. Yes, I'm very proud of our community, or proud's not the word. I, I'm very supportive and caring for it. It is what keeps us going. We we depend upon our community of membership actually mm-hmm. for our existence. We don't we're not endowed, uh, and we don't have an academic uh, a connection which might provide salary. So our community is our support, but it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. We. We do things for our community as we can. Uh, one of the most favorite, uh, fun things that we do is uh, every month or so, we have a side games night and it's just to demonstrate what testing can be in a mm-hmm. fun situation. And it ends up with spoon bending, which is yeah. always of interest. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's not not a, 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 a that is a game. That's not an experiment. But yeah. the others are example of experiments that mm-hmm. we do uh, put in a fun context. Yeah. So a p- person can get a. a a quick idea of what testing was like in the old days and some of it what's still going on, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of remote viewing, a little bit of uh, affecting a machine to see if you can see if a machine works a certain way or not. Mm-hmm. Well, Sally, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you've been a really stalwart supporter of, of the field now uh, for your whole life, practically, except for some intermissions like having children. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been back in the, back working in the field now for almost 20 years when I retired from psychology and um, about the time they needed uh, more help with the leadership. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a stretch for me to try to do that. That was not what I was trained for or endowed with doing very capably. But fortunately, we have found some a good leader now and now the Rhine is on a, I think, on a really a good upward path with more research and expanding opportunities, education, services, and so forth. But you've heard that already before. I, well, it's I worth it's worth repeating, and mm-hmm. uh, I would certainly encourage uh, our viewers who are ever available in Durham to come and visit the Rhine Center. Absolutely, it's just as easy as a click on your internet to find us where mm-hmm. we are and when we meet. Yeah, because you do have uh, a number of events open to the public. Yes, we do, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's just great seeing you again and mm-hmm. talking to you. And thank you for your exposure that you're giving myself and the, the Ryan Center by way of I, uh, I'm very happy to do that because I you know, strongly believe in the work you're doing. Thank you.